local small business vendors. More at BlueHillChamber.org. Just a few seconds before 10.01 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is about Maine's marine worm fishery. So chances are good if you've spent much time on the coast of Maine, you've probably seen some folks in the intertidal zone bent over, working hard, harvesting species out of the mud. And you've probably thought that they were harvesting clams, which is possible. They may have been harvesting clams, but they could also have been looking for marine worms. Um, So unless you're a dedicated mudflat explorer, you may never have seen a marine worm. They're pretty elusive. But marine worms are the fifth most important fishery on the coast of Maine. So they play a pretty important role in our coastal ecology, our coastal economy, and also our our culture on the coast of Maine. Um, So today we're going to learn all about marine worms from all those different perspectives. And I'm excited to have in the studio today a student, a senior at College of the Atlantic, Katie Clark. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the show. Hi, Natalie. Great to be here. Um, So Katie has been uh, taking a deep plunge into marine worms for the last year or two um, as a student and has spent a lot of time talking to worm harvesters, worm dealers, people involved in management of marine worms and all kinds of different facets of the marine worm industry. And I'm excited to have Katie on the show for two reasons today to talk about worms. One is just because for those of you who listen to this show on occasion, you know we like to have students on the show um, because I'm always amazed how students in Maine, be they K through 12 students or college students or beyond, are so deeply engaged in the issues that are happening on our coast. And Katie really represents that commitment to understanding um, coastal issues in Maine. And then the other reason I'm excited to have Katie on the show is because she spent a lot of time interviewing people uh, in the mudflats and uh, in the dealer shops and really um, capturing the voices of harvesters. And um, if you've listened to the show a bit, you know we also really like to um, give harvesters an opportunity to have their voices heard. So today we're going to do a little bit of both. We're going to hear from a student who's been working with harvesters, and we're going to hear some clips directly from the harvesters from interviews that Katie has done over the last year and a half. So it should be a fun show. We've got a bunch of pre-recorded clips, um, so we're not going to have time to take some calls, um, but we encourage you to get in touch with Sea Grant and the program um, to hear more if you want to get involved in any way. 
And the, fir- the, the final thing I'll say before um, introdu- having Katie introduce her a little bit more is if you're wondering what the heck a marine worm looks like, um, hop over to the WERU Facebook page um, because we have a bunch of Katie's photos up on the page so you can get a good sense of what the worms look like and what it looks like to harvest them. So with that, um, Katie, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this sort of muddy business. Thanks, Natalie. Um, I so I'm originally from California, um, but I've been at the at College of the Atlantic for four years now. Um, and for my senior project, I've been interviewing marine worm harvesters, dealers, and other industry members, um, trying to gain their perspectives about the worms that they harvest and the industry that they're involved in. Great. And um, what brought you to worms? <laughs> um, I think it started, I was driving with one of my advisors on the way to a meeting, um, and we saw just a whole bunch of cars parked at one particular mudflat, and we're wondering what brought so many people there at low tide to one place. Uh, And he speculated that it was the worm fishery, but wasn't sure why there were so many there at once. Um, And just that curiosity kind of kicked off the whole project for us. Great. Can you, for folks who have never seen marine worms and are new to understanding this industry and the ecology of the animal, can you tell us a little bit about what they look like and a quick synopsis on the ecology of the species? Sure. So in Maine, there's two species of marine worms that are harvested, bloodworms and sandworms. And bloodworms are bright red um, and um, have kind of this, it's called a proboscis, a head that kind of jets out when they feed um and they're in more of the upper inner tidal and then sandworms are more of a blue orange color and they're kind of further out on, in the intertidal and both species are used as bait in um, ocean-going recreational fisheries so just like you would use a night crawler for recreational fishing on a lake um Bloodworms and sandworms are used as bait in recreational fisheries on the ocean. And where do Maine's bloodworms and sandworms end up? Where's the market? So most of the worms that are harvested in Maine go um, kind of down the East Coast and then to California and even over to Europe and other parts of the world. And as I said uh, a couple minutes ago, um, uh, I learned from you that it's the fifth most important fishery in the state of Maine. And help us understand... um, why this fishery is important on the coast of Maine. I think what's so fascinating to me about this fishery is that it's still an open fishery, which has gotten really rare in Maine, Um, which means that, and by being open, it means that anyone can still purchase a license and go go worm digging. Um, So it's a really accessible fishery, both for supplemental income for folks who need something to carry over between other fisheries or for year-round, you know, full-time income. So it's a really open and and accessible fishery for folks on the coast. That's great. And uh, how long has the fishery been around and how do people harvest marine worms? So the fishery started in Maine around the 1930s, right around the time of the Great Depression. Um, so it's been it's been an industry in Maine for you know almost almost 100 years now, more around 90. Um, and and to actually harvest, so folks use um, a worm hoe, which is kind of like a short pitchfork with a short handle on it, very similar to a clam hoe if you've ever seen one of those, um, and long boots and a bucket or a cooler, and that's really all that you need at least to get started. Um, and they're out on flats for two to four hours, depending on which species they're harvesting. Um, kind of bent over using that hoe to flip the mud and and picking the worms out of the mud. 
uh, to sell. Do you have a sense of um, how how many people are involved in worming? At this point, I think it's a it's between 700 and 800 um, active licenses in the state. So a pretty good chunk of people for a fishery in Maine. Great. Um, and so you have been interviewing a whole bunch of people. I think you told me 19 people total over the last year or so. Twenty. It's up to 21 now. Okay, great. Um, and um, what are some of the themes that we're going to be covering today? Tell us a little bit about the clips that we're going to be hearing from some of your interviews. Yeah, so we're starting off with some clips kind of generally about... Um, what the marine worm fishery looks like and and how people find and harvest worms and then moving in a little bit more to actually patterns of kind of where the worms come up in this state um, and how people access mud flats and then at the end we'll talk about um, changes that the wormers have been seeing when they're out doing their work in mud flats great so um set up the first clip for us who are we going to hear from and um, what's the scope of the first clip yeah, so from the, for this first clip, we'll hear from five um, harvesters, starting with Donnie Baird, who's a digger and dealer from Millbridge, Maine. And we'll hear from Fred Johnson, a digger from Steuben, and then John, his buddy, actually, Jonathan Renwick um, from Birch Harbor, Maine, followed by Derek Crocker, who uh, is currently down in Deer Isle, and then James Arsenault, who is from southern Maine down in Dresden. Great. Um, so in a minute, we're going to get those started. I just wanted to let listeners know that a lot of these interviews were uh, recorded in public places or at the mud flats or at the dealer shops. So you might hear a little bit of background noise, um, but you should be able to get a good story through it. I studied uh, my in uh, eighth grade. And when I studied, I that, that summer that I got out of eighth grade, I studied and I actually hitchhiked because I lived in Cherryfield and I didn't obviously have a license and and uh, my brother had dug worms and I was fascinated by it and I went my first time with him and some friends and uh, to a place called the Key Log in Harrington. I think I had 270 first time out and they told me I'd never make a worm digger and wouldn't be sticking with it because they had like 1500 but they were seasoned diggers. I stayed with it and I studied hitchhiking, digging, and then the next year I bought a 57 Chevy. I got it registered, found an older guy to drive it, and he was like a senior in high school, and and uh, we had some we had some good times, you know, and uh, people took the trade quite seriously. You, the most worms I harvested in one tide was uh, that I sold, and I had more than that. I had sold 3,100. My older brother started when he was a junior in high school, and my dad worked at S.D. Warren in, in Westbrook, Maine at the time, and we had moved up there from Winter Harbor. And my brother got on the phone to him, and he said, Dad, I'm making about $25, $30 a tide. He said, you and the boys ought to come down over Memorial Day and, you know, try it. We'll, we'll meet in Waldenboro and we'll go from there. So into the car we got, me and my three, my uh, two other brothers get, and my father got into the car and down Waldenboro we went. And believe it or not, I dug 150 worms that day at seven years old. So, and I sold them, but I got a cent and three quarters a piece for them. So I made about two dollars and a half. <laughs> But well, that was good money in 1958, yeah. you know. 
That was 1958. Yeah. And I dug probably, I probably dug 10 or 15 tides that year. The next year, I bought my school clothes. At nine, at eight, I bought my school clothes. And that was pretty good for a kid eight years old, you know. And my brothers did too. My, my younger brother was, was, was uh, seven at the time. He was six when he dug his first tide. He's, he's gone now, but he, uh, yeah, he was six. And he wouldn't be left home. He actually had a crying fit because they were gonna leave him home. But anyway, he, he went, the next year he bought his school clothes, or most of them. My older brother, Ted, he's gone too. He, uh, he dug a lot of tides the first year, and, and the next year he dug just the same as I did, and he bought all his school clothes, and he bought a bicycle. You know, but my parents, you know, I mean, there was eight of us. You know, he had, my parents had a large family, and you know, so anything that we could kick in to help, that was extra income for the family. So we, we thought it was a big deal to buy a school clothes, and we thought it was pretty cool that we could buy what we wanted. If we wanted a new pair of sneakers, we bought a new pair of sneakers. So it was pretty neat. You know, I haven't got somebody telling me I have to be there. It, now, there's three things that happen when you're worming, okay? You get plenty of cardiovascular exercise, you're burning calories like it's going out of style, and I'm diabetic and I need to burn them. And you're out in the good fresh air, getting plenty, you know, good good sunshine, good fresh air. And you're also you're seeing people that you that you can associate with, and that you can talk with. And sometimes you're seeing people that you in, you know that you can talk with other than worm harvesters. So it's a pretty good thing. I've been completely focused on just bloodworms my entire life. What my father did, that was all. And so that was that was what I was taught. And as I got older, uh, I'd say from 16 through 20 years old, my father actually helped train me to think on how to find worms and decide where to go and what the schedule should be for different areas and really did me a big favor that a lot of people didn't get. Because it, worm crews, bunches of guys that work together usually have a leader and the leader decides all those things. And one year my father said to me, well, what do you think, where do we ought to go? Where should we dig? And I said, gee, Dad, I don't know, you're the boss. You, that's your job. And he goes, yeah, but if I always tell you, how are you going to know? So that got me thinking. So then I had to decide what time the tide was, what size the tide was. I had to learn what flats drained on what size tides, and it was very good for me. And I would, when I was new at it, I would suggest an area that I liked just because I liked the mud. And he, instead of telling me no, he'd say, well, that's an idea. Let's think about this for a minute. Kind of guide my thought process. And that was, uh, that was a big favor my father did me. Because when he got done, I wasn't lost. I bring a spare hoe, usually. Uh, 
sometimes I bring a different one. You know, a lot of times I'll carry two. I don't just carry one. I might carry a wide tine toe or I might carry a shallow tine toe. It depends on what I'm digging in. You know, if I'm digging more in that rocky, sandy stuff, you know, I might carry a couple different versions of that one with real short tines or some with, something with a little wider tine so I can dig the edges of the mud. But I wear one glove on my whole hand that I dig with. In wintertime, I wear one on my pickup hand if it's really, really cold, but only if I have to. It's, it's easy if you can feel them, I think, you know, because you don't have to look. Because once you, once, if you can feel them with a glove on, you can't feel them. And you don't know, getting a lot of mud sticks to your hand. But with a bare hand, you can feel them. And uh, so as soon as, I, as soon as I get a hold of them, then I can concentrate on looking for the next one. The steel has gotten terrible. Um, we've been getting cheap Chinese steel. Um, the tines don't hold up. They break easy. Um, our hole builders, they, they complain. Um, it's they're wearing out faster. Um, you know, I mean, our gloves—they cost, you know, God, they cost eight bucks a pair now. And I remember when I first started, you get a glove and you might be able to wear that glove all week. You know, and then it costs a couple bucks. And now it's lasted me eight, two weeks, eight bucks a glove, eight bucks a pair, and I'm only using one. Yeah. You know, the other one I'm throwing away. Over the years, we always just used like we take dung forks or thing, whatever dung forks or uh, potato rakes or anything, turn them into clam hose yeah. and the steel's changing them over the years too. And some of the manufacturers gone out of business. You can't buy them no more. Um, one of the big things that you see, um, they used to ga gather Volkswagen springs and use the old Volkswagen springs to build clamp worm hose with. Um, baby carriages, they take the springs off them and use them to build old round town hose with them and stuff because they were tough. And, yeah. uh, they lasted. I, I still got some. I still got some of them old holes. They're worn right out. There ain't nothing left of them, but I still got some of them, and I'll never buy it for them. I do enjoy being out there. I've, I've, I've often said before, I mean, it's an absolutely wonderful... Other, you know, yeah, you can deal with cold and bugs and everything like that, but if it weren't for the work angle of it, it would be perfect. In other words, the actual, the actual labor can be, it's monotonous. I mean, even when you get good at it, you get, there's a certain amount of thought you've got to put into it. You know, as you, you know, there's worms, different different flats, worms are different places in the mud and different things, and you've got to see how the water's draining across the flat and dig accordingly so the water will continue to drain. Like, so the next day when you get there, you haven't blocked all the water in behind where you need to dig again. So you've got to put some thought into how you're digging it, okay? But I mean, it's not, it's not, it doesn't require a huge amount of intellect to do that. Okay? So the actual work angle of it can be really monotonous, it can be mind-numbingly boring. But you're out there, it's a beautiful place, you know? And I take the boat every day, and almost every day I'll take the boat, so I go for a boat ride, and then, I mean, it's, again, intensely beautiful out there, and, and the, the wildlife abounds, and everything else. So everything, and then a lot of times, like when the stripers are in, I'll get done digging, and I'll fish, while I'll wash my worms up, I'll fish for 15, 20 minutes, and catch, you know, stripers, and then, Go about my day. So, I mean, this, other than the actual menial labor of it, it's I absolutely love it. And that's the thing when you, as soon as you start turning the, the mud over, you got to figure out how the worms are laying in the mud. Whether they're laying horizontal, vertical, head down, head up. Okay, and then you, you're kind of cutting the mud accordingly, trying to expose the worm the best you can to get at it. Sometimes you cut the mud a little thicker. Other times you're cutting it thinner. And then other times you're trying to dig deeper or you're 
you're, if, they're, if they're shallow, you can angle it more and flip the mud. If they're deeper, you're, you're basically driving the hole and lifting mm -hmm. the mud. Right. Right? Yeah. So you do want it to break apart easier to find the worms, but at the same time, you, it, how thick you cut it is the, how you actually see the worm. But what's really important to us is being able to actually go find the worms and dig them where they are. Yeah. See, that's the difference between worming and clamming. Under the town ordinances, a lot of those guys a lot of times are restricted to a particular town. That's all they can harvest in. If we had to do that in worming, it would, it would kill us. Because worms are so here today, gone tomorrow, that we've got to be able to actually travel to where they are and find them where they are. And that's actually one of the conservation issues with it. With not issues with it, one of the good is because you can move. An area gets depleted to the point where you can't really make it do, do that well there. You can, we can pick up and move and let that area recover. That was, uh, let's see, that was James Arsenault, uh, who is a sandworm digger from Dresden. Um, and before that, we heard from four other marine worm harvesters. We heard from Donnie Baird, Fred Johnson, Jonathan Renwick, and Derek Crocker. You're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU with your host, Natalie Springle. And our show today is all about marine worms. Um, WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. So today in the studio, we have Katie Clark, who's a senior at College of the Atlantic, who um, did all of these recordings with these worm harvesters as part of her final project at, in her academic career. Um, so Katie, uh, when I was listening to those clips, it just kind of blows me away the depth of knowledge that people who are harvesters have about the ecology of a region. Um, and uh, tell us a little bit about that in terms of sort of what you picked up and what you learned from an ecological perspective from the guys you interviewed. Yeah, it, their knowledge is absolutely amazing. Um, and, and part of the focus of the interviews was about collecting some of that kind of local ecological knowledge that they have. Um, but one of the things that was really striking to me was just how variable the worms are uh, and where they come up at different times through throughout the state. Um, they're only up in that top layer of mud where they can be dug at, at really particular times in really particular flats. And so that uh, they were talking about that ability to move and search for worms, and, and it just really hit me how important that is for their industry. And can wormers, uh, how does the management work? Can, do they have a license? Can they fish anywhere? Help us understand that piece. Yeah, so wormers, um, they get a license from the Department of Marine Resources, and with that license, they can harvest on any mudflat in the state of Maine. Um, so they have a lot of flexibility in kind of where they can go and harvest from. And I imagine that flexibility is probably pretty important to them. Yes, for sure. It was uh, emphasized over and over again in the interviews just how much that ability to move and, and look for worms and find worms where they are in that year at that time is just incredibly important to them. And how do they, um, how do they access the flats? So for some of the flats, they'll they'll walk down whether um, you know there's a public access place there or sometimes kind of long-standing agreements with landowners. Uh, more and more, they're having to take boats because some of those access points um, they're losing, and we'll hear more about that in this next segment. Um, but yeah, so e either walking onto flats from kind of the upland or taking a boat from a public boat launch. So let's move into this next segment. Who are we going to hear from in this next clip? 
So we'll start off hearing from uh, Ken Weber, who is a uh, bloodworm and sandworm digger from Ellsworth, Maine, um, very local. Um, and then we'll hear again from Jonathan Renwick and Fred Johnson, and it'll actually jump back to Jonathan Renwick again. Um, and I just want to emphasize that Fred and Jonathan have been harvesting together for years. They're really good friends, and so you'll hear them refer to each other in these clips. Great. So let's get started with Ken, who I think is going to start um, telling you how he finds the worms to begin with. You just got to look. I mean, it takes a lot of looking. I've done a lot of walking to find them. You know, walk around the shore and go out and try it. Walk around the shore some more, walk out and try it. And you have to. You know, sometimes you just take a strip and just run it just as far as you can. Just go with it till you come across something. That's what, how else are you going to know if you don't turn that mud over? Walk, you can, if you walk to it, you just walk over the top of them because they're not on the surface. Uh, they're under mm-hmm. the mud. It's, it's a lot of work, a lot more than people now. For a worm digger to go find one. Usually I'll start at a place where I know if there is any there, they would be there. Mm-hmm. And if they're not real good diet, then I'll try, I'll just keep moving. And sometimes you can look at the mud and just get a feeling. It's, I don't know, it's something inside. It's an instinct. It's just like, I don't know, finding gold, I guess. Some people get that magic yeah. touch and some people don't. I can, but I can come up here and look at a flat and tell you just about if there's going to be any worms, about where they're going to be. But yeah, it's, it's just a, uh, it's just, you can almost smell them. You can feel it. Uh, you know, I haven't gone there in a long time. It sticks in your head and it stays there. It won't leave. I got to go try it. I, I did it live. I went over Belfast. It's, no kidding. I went over Belfast. Me and my boy went over women. It started raining. We were sitting over the bridge on the, where they walk across the old bridge. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were sitting there and it started raining. And I, I just knew there was worms there. I, I said, hell with it. I said, I don't want to dig. Let's go home. Went home. They went over there. Boys went over. Some of the other boys went over about a week later. They were over there digging 2,000 a Todd. <laughs> I walked away from it. I knew there was other. I yeah. just knew it. But I didn't. As I've learned it from my own practical application, it is warmer in western Maine earlier in the spring. You can go to Wiscasset and you're up in a river system with huge mud flats all around it which the sun beats in and warms up the water it warms up the flats the water runs over it that warms up the flats it warms up the water column and everything quicker so the worms come up that's one of the reasons why they spawn so heavy in in the wiscasset woolwich area so every spring in march Sometimes even in February, we go down that way and start exploring to see what's showing for worms. Because it's 10 degrees warmer than it is right here. That 10 degrees is huge. Uh, When the worms go into spawn down that way and they're no longer marketable worms, then we can't come back to this area. Worm diggers are not restricted to any given town. They're not restricted to any given river system. I can dig today, I could grab my hoe, bucket, and trot and drive down a callus and dig callus tonight with a headlight. I could turn around and say, this is no good, drive to Wiscasset and dig down there. I can dig anywhere in Jonesport, anywhere at Addison, and I have. Um, and, it's, and it's the freedom to be able to explore find new places, walk new shoreline. Fred and I always clicked when it come to I was in Florida one winter uh, pouring concrete for my father-in-law. 
I injured my shoulder. Didn't come home till end of May. And uh, Fred was digging with my cousin and a couple other guys, and they were taking a, a little skiff and going out onto a bar over here in Skillings River that comes out and, and digging. And I met him on the road, and and uh, they said, "Geez, you know." My cousin goes, "He goes, we'd take you out." He said, "I suppose we could make two trips." He goes, and I said, "No, nah, it's all right. You know, you guys digging it, it's your spot." I said, "I've got an idea anyway." And Fred goes, what's that? And I said, Herrick's Bay. And he goes, let me out of this truck. <laughs> and he jumped out. We went to Herrick's Bay, and we had phenomenal digging. And, yeah. and and because it just seemed like if we both agreed on a place, then you could guarantee that they were going to be there. Jonathan and I both study him, and we bounce things off each other all the time. John and I are very close. I mean, he's like a brother, really, truly. And I love him to death, just like I do our little brother. And we bet I, you know, bounce ideas off each other all the time. And he'll say, "Well, I found him here," and I go, "Well, then maybe somewhere like here will be good." And he'll go, "Well, yeah, that's about the same mud," or, "Or well, no, that the tide isn't really big enough for that," or, "Well, last time I was there, that mud had changed." One time, Jonathan and I were digging this place. We were just spotting it to start with. So we took the canoe and paddled over there and tried it. We're digging away, and, it's, and, it's, and his father's digging it over on the mainland, and it's getting foggier, and, it, and it's just, I mean, it's shutting right down. And it gets dark, but these worms are glowing because they'd eaten phosphorus. Wow. And they're showing after dark, and we dug worms almost 45 minutes after pitch dark, and you could still see them. And his father's freaking out, thought we lost in the fog. He's laying on the horn of the car, flashing the lights, and you know, we were like probably almost a half a mile away over across this channel. And he's hooting and hollering, tooting the horn. Jeez, we got in, he ripped us a new onion, I can tell you that. But where you guys been? And we go, Jesus, the worms were glowing, Bill. They were, you couldn't leave them, it was three or four across, and they were glowing in the dark. He goes, yeah, right, and his father was a Baptist minister. And so we didn't dare swear, but he goes, yeah, right, you know. <laughs> it was really, that was that was pretty memorable. Back when I was a, kid, a little kid, you could go about anywhere in park, and nobody gave you too much of a hassle. Once in a while, you'd get hassled. And some of the, some, some of the older diggers had a really, really rough reputation, and we've been trying to change that the last 10 years or so. And... You know, I, I make sure now that I'm the president of the Down East chapter that I let these people have my name. I said, if somebody leaves a mess, you let me know, I'll come clean it up. I'll find out who did it and I'll, I'll address it with them. I said, because, you know, to me, it's, it's a privilege. It's getting more and more prevalent that you have to take boats because of the loss of access to mudflats. Uh, as worms get more and more aggressive and they follow each around each other around in bigger and bigger crowds, they create more messes, they create more noise. Uh, landowners get upset. Just walking across the field, uh, four or five guys for a week straight. If they use the same path, make a path. 
you do that with 20 guys across the hayfield and and you've you know you've you've made a a crease in that field that's going to be there for 20 years um unfortunately not all worm diggers are ethical you know they take their soda cans down and they lug two or three cans in their bucket and they get done drinking it and they throw it and it washes up on the shore the landowner has to clean up his property because these wormers and clammers are out there doing that. It It's horrible. We go around, we do shore cleanup, and we clean up trails, and we clean up pathways, and we still lose access to uh, the flats because of misbehavior. And it's understandable. And, you know, it used to be on the coast of Maine there was large areas of, of woodland that didn't have houses and you know there was little turnout parking lots and people would walk down through the woods and nobody cared well then you know another house gets built sorry about that another house gets built another house gets built the worm digger or the clam digger that's been packing in this spot for 20 years can't understand why he can't pack there anymore and walk down through there anymore even though you know if some stranger was packing in their driveway, they wouldn't like it. It's common sense goes a long ways. And we advocate as as a worm association for wormers to get to know landowners, ask permission, you know, say, I'd like to walk down here. Where could I walk where I won't bother you? Mm-hmm. And if it's no, then walk further. Go, you know, say, well, I understand, thank you, and be polite and leave. And the next time you ask, maybe they'll say yes, you know, next year. Uh, I've had exclusive permissions in many places just because of asking. That was Jonathan Renwick, who's a marine worm harvester. And before Jonathan, we heard from Fred Johnson and Ken Weber, who are also marine worm harvesters um, in the region. And in the studio, we have Katie Clark, who's a senior at College of the Atlantic, who um, has been interviewing a lot of wormers and dealers and other people involved in the management and other aspects of the worming industry. Um, And Katie, uh, Jonathan there at the end was talking about some of the issues that wormers face within the industry um, and also with landowners. Um, can you can you sort of give us a little bit of context to, I'm going to summarize it as kind of the access issues that these guys may face? Yeah, so um, a couple different, or access came up a lot in the interviews, particularly because as um, more and more people purchase properties along the coast, some of those access points that they've been able to rely on for a really long time are, are changing. Um, but there were also, I, there was a clip that I, I had wanted to include, but the background noise is a little bit too strong um, from a harvester, um, Archie Rivers, who's over um, on the Skudik Peninsula, um, talking about how, like, there, um, he had an experience where um, a man get, had given them access, and when he passed on the house to his son, kind of showed him the worm diggers and said, those folks, they're making their living, never shut off this access point. This is really important for them. Um, or a landowner who came down and brought him a glass of water on a really hot day. So there are these kind of bright points as well. Um, but that kind of landowner digger interaction, I think, is always really dynamic. And so I think they're really working to establish really strong relationships right now. 
That's an interesting story and, and uh, about the landowner being very generous to the to the worm digger. That's great, bringing them a cold glass of water on a hot day. Um, I know that in your time as a student, you've you've sort of looked at some of the bigger picture about the changing nature of Maine's working waterfronts and some of the threats that the working waterfront is experiencing. Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of put the worm situation in the mudflats into a larger context in the state? Yeah, I think, I mean, as a state, Maine used to have a lot more open shoreline where there weren't buildings and structures and towns and municipalities. And more and more, those those access points um, are changing, either to the tourist industry or um, kind of out-of-state folks buying, buying properties. Um, and so, you know, even within municipalities, like the amount of, of peer space that there is for folks to launch boats from... Um, it's just changing and, and in a lot of ways shrinking. And so I think um, it's an issue across the state. And then for the wormers, it really comes down to land that used to be open or even if someone owned it, there was kind of a, an understanding that it was okay to walk across open woodland. And that culture has been changing a bit in the state. Um, and then I think a lot of industries are feeling that. But yeah, a couple months ago on Coastal Conversations, we covered um, the changing nature of Portland's working waterfront and how um, fishermen in Port- Portland have been working really hard to protect access to the ocean and to the piers and the wharves. Um, so that's sort of the the uh, the boat side and the pier and wharf side of some of the issues that the wormers are feeling. So it's it's a it's an issue up and down the coast. Um, so if folks are here interested in hearing more about working waterfront issues, we have covered it a few times in the past as well from different angles. Um, so uh, what's our next segue going to be about? What are our next clips going to be about? Yeah, so this last segment is um, all about kind of the changes that wormers are observing, whether um, it's out on the flats, kind of more the ecology, or within their industry and kind of some of the social things that are happening, um, and, and their concerns for the future of the industry or, or maybe what they're doing about those concerns. Um, and who are we going to hear from this time? So uh, we'll hear from Donnie Baird again, who is the digger and dealer from Millbridge, as well as, well as James Arsenault, the digger from Dresden. Um, Fred and Jonathan will both pop in again, and then Derek Crocker, the digger from Deer Isle. And before we jump into the clip, um, you said, I think you said it was Donnie Baird, who's a dealer. Can you explain what a dealer is? Oh, yes, for sure. Um, So harvesters sell, uh, each work individually to harvest worms, and then they sell their worms to a dealer, a dealer shop, um, who buys from anywhere from maybe 15 to 60 diggers and then sells um, kind of the combined worms to the markets on the East Coast in California and Europe. Great. Thank you. So with that, let's um, hear from Donnie Baird, who's both a harvester and a dealer. For years and years and years, the rivers would freeze over and maintain their ice all winter. And now um, we usually in we'll get a real heavy freeze and around the end of January when rough weather will come, it breaks the ice out. I don't know whether soft spells in the weather or, or uh, the heavy winds, but it's been breaking out, it hasn't stayed. And when that breaks out and goes 30 below at night, it's been freezing the mud. And that drives the worms either super deep or out or kills them outright. Because I've seen ice balls in the mud and dead worms. And that's affected them big time. And it, then it turns the mud mealy and kills their feed. 
a few years ago, once that mud turned, it goes to like pudding and it also scrapes it off and leaves just rocky substrate with hard clay and they don't like that. In the places where the mud just throws and, and turn grainy and, and it changes the texture of it totally. The mud itself freezing is really hurt. Where the ice breaks out, we don't in for you don't get to set smelt shacks like you used to. You know, the rivers don't freeze enough. Like over to Addison always they could set their smelt shacks way down the river. And now it's a rare year that you get to put them on and they never get to stay long. It's dropped sharply. That's due to a lot of the rivers where we lost our muscles. And the muscle beds were what were keeping the worms fed, the effluent from the muscle beds. And when we lost the muscles, we lost worms in those rivers. Some of those rivers still have worms, but they won't grow. There's no size for them. They stay submarketable size when the muscle beds, no food. You can take a worm, okay, seaweed, and then again, sandworms are, you know, they're feeding on planktonic sized stuff. If there's enough feed, sandworms grow and will grow sometimes at an unbelievable rate when there's enough, with enough feed and the mussel beds provided that feed in those rivets and when the mussel beds and, and in this part of the state the intertidal mussel beds in a lot of places are, are literally 100% gone and when we lost and then the other issue happening is that when we lost the mussel beds it lost the feed and then you started to have erosion wash these mussel beds started to wash and that wash is a heavy shelly wash and it will wash out over the nearby flats, and when it did, it smothered the mud. Literally, literally smothered the mud underneath. The mud underneath literally turned black. Living mud, I call it living mud, will be like a gray to a brown color, and it will literally have stuff living in it. And it will li literally, I call it living mud. Dead mud will, come, will be black, and that shell wash would cause it, you know, to turn black. The people in the worm industry are getting older. Uh, on both ends. A lot of the buyers are getting out of it, and I don't know, is it to, I, um, when these guys retire, will anyone take these businesses because access is becoming limited everywhere and the waterfront is going over to tourism. But this industry is part of the tourist industry. In the high season is during the, everyone's vacation time in the summer. And that's why in the summer, these other shops will sell that small stuff because the tourist that comes there from Missouri doesn't know the difference between a good worm and just buying a dozen worms that are yeah. inferior and not good. But in the off season, the real fishermen are left and they want a good product. So. Yeah, as I said, it's very dynamic. I think it will survive. I'm just not sure if it will go over to the to an internet trade, or if they'll they'll some of the it may come down to a few major shops taking over and having the business, you know, and pushing the small guys out, less mom and pop shops. I intend to cling to it as long as. You know, long as I can just to keep the jobs going. And to be honest with you, I think, you know, the drug epidemic has something to do with it. It takes a lot of the incentive away. As long as they get enough to cover their need, that's all they really worry about. And it's sad, but it's...
that's the way it is. We've lost a lot of access because of that. You know, people leaving used hypodermic needles around, you know, um, or sitting there burnt, you know, I mean, you know, shot up and goony. Um, it, yeah, it has it adversely affected, but it, it has adversely affected every industry in the state of Maine. I don't care what it is, right from McDonald's to lobstering, fish dragging, uh, wood cutting, every bit of it. It's everywhere. It's sad, but that's how it is. You know, yeah, just you know, it's 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 a terrible thing. It truly is. But it's a disease, and until until people realize it that it is a disease and the way to combat it is not to ostracize and not to kick these people and not to, you know, throw them under the bus and not to put them in a situation where they can't get work and where they can't, you know, support themselves or their families, um, change the box that they live in. Till they understand that, there's no end in sight, you know? You know, riding around in a, and arresting, you know, addicts and throwing them in jail and, you know, making it so that, you know, their whole future is ruined is not the way to go. You no. Know? And they don't understand it. It's, it is a disease. It is a plague. And until we handle it as a disease and, and try to help these people instead of kicking them down, we're not going to gain anything. You know, it, it, it's sad because it's everywhere. It's not, it's not any socioeconomic group. It's everywhere. And, and it has impacted my industry, but it's impacted every industry. And every one of them has been adverse. It's not been anything positive about it. And, you know, right now, you know, if somebody loses a job, they can always go worming, or they can go clamming. If I mean, clamming, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of limitations on clamming, but they can still go. But they can go wrinkling, and they can go seaweeding. And those are open industries. Those are something somebody can do with not much education, just a will to work, and they can feed their families and pay their bills and feed their houses if they have to. And to me, that we need that. We don't need. Somebody in Augusta saying, no, you can't. You don't have a license and you can't buy one either. One of the saddest things I think that has happened to the coast of Maine is that when I was a young man, 17, 18 years old, I could dream as big and do as much as I wanted to do. Now, almost every fishery is a dedicated fishery that if you don't have a license, and it is very hard to get into. And originally, I worked on a uh, fish dragon. I worked on scallop draggers, uh, shark and scallops. I worked on urchin draggers and actually ran one for two or three winters myself. I went shrimp dragging lobster fishing, and now the only two sources of income that are left to me are lobstering and worming. And trust me, that's enough. But I look at 
the young people coming up being pigeonholed and boxed in and not having the ability and what happens if we have a die off or fall off in numbers of the lobsters? We're here trying to make a living and they've taken away uh, rights to the access of different species. And interestingly enough, as far as I'm concerned, if you look at the history of things, owner-operators didn't wipe out the fisheries. The small boats, 35, 40-footers, didn't wipe out the fisheries. It was the big boats. I frequent all the fishing pages, um, all fishermen, all, all kinds of fishing, fishing forums and stuff. I want to know where my bloodworms are going, who's buying them, are they happy with them, are they catching fish on them, why they use them, you know. Um, I just talked to my fishing trip in New York. I just talked to a great young man out there, had a talk for about an hour and 15 minutes on bloodworms. He goes, what do you do for a living? I said, I dig bloodworms and sandworms. He says, no kidding, we use them fishing. And we had an hour and 15 minute talk right there on the bank about bloodworms and the product he's seeing and the prices he's paying on them. Yeah. And is he happy with them, you know? And, uh, you know, every, every time you turn around, there's a new bait coming on the market. And we just had another one industry, another business start up that they take, they buy squid, they get squid, they drive squid, and then they infuse it with, with bloodworms, blood from bloodworms, and selling that as being. So, I mean, they're, they're always trying to reinvent. You can't, there's there's no substitute for natural bait, you know, good natural bait, but, but there's always some threats out there. I mean, somebody could come up with something that's just works tenfold, and if it does, then you know, who's going to pay for it? I mean, yeah. will the industry go away? Probably not, but you might see prices drop. So I've seen a lot of things like that that I always thought was doom and gloom, but we're still here, we're still digging. You know? And I'd like to think that if I was to live to be 100, I'd still be here, I'd still be digging. I take an active part and go to every meeting, and if they need me to go to Augusta for, you know, for or whatever, I just try to be, take an active part in it. I never used to. I used to say, well, somebody else is going to. But so now... No, now it's my turn. I need to, you know, I take more active part and as much as I can. I want to see it better. You know, I don't want to see us shut out. I don't want to see us shut off. Um, I don't want to see us regulated. Um, in, you know, and I can't, you know, I can't stop that if I don't be a part of it. You know, I got to be a part of it to stop that. And we need to be a big voice. You know, we can't have two or three guys talking, you know, standing up there and saying, well, this is, you know, fighting our fight. We need to fight our fight as a group. So I I try to take part in that and do my part. Uh, and I encourage everybody else. My wife goes, my kids go. Um, you know, we all, you know, and we encourage many people as we can, you know, and, and we have to because, you know, I, I want to keep what we got and I'd like to see it get better. I, I could see a, a better future for, for it down the road. You know, if we take an active part and, you know, and, and put that time and effort into it. So that was Derek Crocker, a marine worm harvester, who was being interviewed by Katie Clark, a senior at College of the Atlantic, who is in the studio with us here today on Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill and online at WERU.org. And before hearing from Derek, we also heard from Jonathan Renwick, Fred Johnson, James Arsenault, and Donnie Baird, who are all uh, worm harvesters or dealers, uh, worm dealers uh, on the coast of Maine. And our show today uh, is about the marine worm industry. And in those clips, 
We heard about a lot of issues that these guys are thinking about out on the flats. So we talked they, they talked a little bit about um, the importance of being able to get into the fishery. Um, talked about the opioid crisis impacting so many industries on our coast. Um, they talked about coastal access issues, market issues. Um, and at the end, uh, I was really interested in Derek's comments about um, being really active in the industry. And Katie, so in your interviews with all of these guys, um, tell us a little bit about their perspective of um, being engaged in the management of the industry and how much a voice of a voice they're able to have. Yeah, so the industry has kind of a, a, a self-management group, um, the Independent Marine Worm Harvesters Association. Um, and it, it kind of came out of, the, the group formed out of um, a legislative uh, debate that they, that back in like 2014. And since then, they've been a really active voice for the industry, working with both DMR, the Department of Marine Resources, and scientists, university scientists in the state, to especially work on um, just getting more research into the worm fishery and the worm species themselves, as well as making sure that they have a really concentrated voice whenever um, a new bill is being proposed that might impact the industry. So they've needed to get organized over the years. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah great. Um, so you have spent the better part of the last year and a half interviewing a whole lot of people. You probably, I would expect, have something like 40 hours of interviews that you're going through. Um, what's your What's your sort of take-home message? What, what's like the big theme that you, you would like people to understand about um, the marine worm industry? I think the biggest thing for me has really been just how special it is as an open fishery in the state of Maine, um, that it's still an option for really anyone if they, um, like one of them said, if they have the will to work and, and get out in the inner title, then, you know, it's an, it's an accessible and open fishery for people, um, whether they're between jobs or whether this is their main job, um, and that they have this freedom to go different places and find the worms where they are. I think it's just really amazing to still see that, that, that there's an industry like that in Maine. Neat. That's very cool. Um, we are winding down on Coastal Conversations. Um, my last question for you is, uh, what's, your, what's your hope for the future of the industry? I think, and it was talked about a little bit in one of the interviews, but there's not a lot of younger folks getting into the worm industry. Um, and I think this is a, a problem that we're seeing across a lot of fisheries. But I think if I, yeah, if I had a hope for the industry, it would be to see some, some new people getting in and so that knowledge isn't lost. You know, I've documented some of it in these interviews, but there's so much more um, just really particular, amazing knowledge about this fishery and the species. And I would love to see that, you know, passed down and, and this industry continue and into the future. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for coming and um, sharing your stories, sharing your own knowledge. You also have amassed a lot of knowledge about the worm industry. Um, and thanks for sharing your audio clips, um, bits of them. I know that you have so much more information that you could share, but we're at the end of our time. Um, most importantly, I also really wanted to thank all of the harvesters who were interviewed by Katie and the dealers and the folks in the industry. Um, and thanks also for your for giving Katie permission to share your stories. We we hear a lot about lobsters and clams and scallops and other industries on the waterfront, um, but 
people in Maine don't know as much about the worm industry, and it's really great to have an opportunity to share some of these stories. So in particular, I want to thank Donald Baird, bloodworm digger and dealer from Millbridge, Fred Johnson, bloodworm digger from Steuben, Jonathan Renwick, bloodworm digger from Birch Harbor, um, Derek Crocker, bloodworm and sandworm digger from Deer Isle, James Arsenault, sandworm digger from Dresden, and Kenneth Weber, who's a sandworm digger from Ellsworth. Thanks so much, and... Um, Look forward to continuing to hear about your stories. Thanks for our for all of you for listening to the show. Um, next month's coastal conversations will be about sea run fish and alewife restoration in the Bagaduce River area. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned to On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation.